I love that feeling of accomplishment and business is a great place to exercise that muscle. My name is Merrill Dubrow, CEO of Mark Research. I'm a 35-year veteran of the research and insights community and the host of our podcast, On The Mark. On The Mark is focusing on executives and thought leaders in the world, sharing their insights, strategies, and personal experiences. I promise this podcast will be filled with tough, pointed questions with real, insightful, and emotional answers. Today's guest is Isaac Rogers, CEO at 2020, a Schlesinger Group company. Isaac, welcome to the On The Mark podcast. Happy to be here, Merrill. Thanks for having me. Oh, great. All right, let's get into it, Isaac. So let's start with a little bit of background for the listeners. Okay. So my tenure in market research has been about 13 years. Like like a lot of us out there, uh, I got into this industry by accident. You know, I started, I was in undergrad around the time of, of the dot-com boom and bust. And so when when we were graduating from college and looking for careers, obviously technology was a, was a big part of, of where people were looking. And I landed with a, with a technology startup that kind of went bust right about the time they hired me. And from the ashes of that business, we, we created a new business and grew it into something totally radically different and new. And I just got hooked on this idea of how technology can enable so much change and innovation in businesses and business processes. We worked for government consulting and contracting. And so the idea of being able to go in and innovate and modernize and update through technology and consulting is a funny place to study that intersection. And then I went back to grad school, got my MBA at Vanderbilt, thought I was going to go be a management consultant. And I, I actually had had a job lined up to go do that. And I got a call from a friend of mine who said, hey, there's this guy I know, his name's Jim Bryson. And he's got this market research company. You know, they dabble a little bit of technology. And this was like 2007, right? So this was a long time ago. And she said, you know, I know you've already got a job. And I had spent a couple of years in business intelligence before. And so I kind of, you know, had a couple of different careers in this space and done a little bit of consulting before grad school. And she said, could you just go over and talk to him and hear him out? What he thinks he's got with, with this technology that, that they have at, at this company called 2020 Research here in Nashville. And just give him some advice because I don't really think he knows what he's doing. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll be happy to do that. So we set up a lunch. And about 15 minutes into that, I'm hearing about our industry and where it is and Jim's vision for how he wanted to change things and where he thought things could go. And, and that was it. Within about 15 minutes, as, as you know, we, we both tell the story now, he knew he wanted to hire me and I knew I wanted to work with him. And we were going to sort out all the details later. So, so I think the next day he called me up and offered me a job. I turned down all my other jobs and decided I was going to start at 2020 Research. And that was really my start in market research. I'd done a little bit of market research and we'd done some focus group work when I was a product manager in business intelligence a few years before. So I'd been behind the glass of a focus group, done some surveys and some exercises like that. But really my first foray into, into true market research was, was getting hired into this industry by Jim. Wow, that's great. That's exciting. So let's describe 2019 to me. I know you guys probably at the, if I had to guess in Q4, of 19, you're doing all this strategic planning, right? So what were some of the goals that you came out of and the direction you were going to have at the end of 2019 going into 2020? Oh, Merrill, that seems like three lifetimes ago. I know, it does, doesn't it? It really does. Funny, you know, the other day I was looking through some, some pictures and, and I had my leadership team together and I think it was late November or December and we were doing our, our annual planning and and I was like, wow, that was, I don't even remember what it was like to go to a restaurant <laughs> with that many people. <laughs> it's funny. So our planning for the future largely aligns with what we're still doing today as, as a larger part of, of the Schlesinger Group. So, you know, we saw, you know, still so much growth in, in digital tools and qualitative methodologies. We saw how the industry was growing and changing. We saw 
new entrants that are coming in and, and wanting to consume these, these market research services and, and how you address them and serve them. And so most of our strategic planning was around how to organize from a product sales and marketing perspective and, and really continue a vision that we'd started uh, about two or three years prior. We had, we had built out a, a three-year plan uh, two years before. And so we were kind of halfway through executing that. And we'd refreshed that I believe in October of last year. And so our planning session later in the year was really about, okay, how do we get these things done and accomplish these goals that we have for the next year? And so it was focusing uh, you know, a lot on, on the, the parts of the business that we knew were going to grow and, and how we were going to do that. So you know, we weren't at a moment where we were really changing anything. We were dialing in product, marketing, operations, you know, professional services, all the different things that we bring to bear. And, and so it was, you know, COVID in and of itself was interesting shock to the system, but we've been planning kind of on a steady path for the, for the past couple of years already. So finish this sentence. So if I said, wow, even though we didn't know the pandemic, the best move we made in 2019 or even 2018 was blank. What's the blank? Was it diversification? No, Meryl, you know, I made a lot of mistakes in my life. At times, I think as leaders, we're really ravenous and desperate for growth. And so you try new things and you, and you try and tweak and optimize and try some things you never tried before. And I would say that starting in the year 2018, our, our strategic plan was really about, look, we've got all these amazing capabilities and technologies and, and services we can provide. What do the customers really want? And how do we talk to those customers in a way that it really connects with them? And so our strategy was less about new and more about how do you really effectively deliver the message about what 2020 could do to, to help an agency move the needle forward? How can we really start with the customer problem first and work backwards into, so what does that mean for us? And it, it's not that we'd fallen off that path at any time. I think if you talk to a lot of long-term 2020 clients, we've always kind of put the client out as a key driver of, of where we're going to take things. But I think we kind of doubled down on it in 2018 and we were, I think, rewarded for that as well. So uh, there I am in the beginning of 2020. And I'm with, with Steve, actually in South Beach, we're chairing the CEO conference. And then, you know, obviously the Super Bowl comes in February and, and you're hearing a little bit more of this pandemic. And obviously there was lots of discussions about, um, you know, Steve's company acquiring 2020 and then bam, the pandemic hit. We didn't even, I'm not sure most of us knew what it was in January and February. And then it really hit and hit hard and rocked the qualitative world. So there you are, you're in the middle of these discussions with, with Schlesinger. It's been going on for a while. The pandemic is there. What was your initial reaction? Were you like dazed and confused? Were you like, wow, this is going to be a savior? What was kind of your thoughts going through your brain? You know, it's a good question, Meryl. Funny enough, it, it really didn't change the way I felt at all. Wow, that's great. I don't want to take away from any of, of Steve's strategy and brilliance about how we're running this business. Look, he's forgotten more about this industry than I'll ever know. But, you know, this was in the works for a very long time before COVID was even a word that anybody knew existed. And what's a very long time, Isaac? Come on, let's be specific. Well, how many years? You know how this works, Meryl, right? Like, no, I don't. I don't. I'm asking. Cut the crap. Let's go. I want an answer, a number. With people in the industry, and whether it's at conferences or you create some intentional time, I would say for four or five years, we had been talking to Steve about what's his vision for the industry? How would, how would a company like 2020 fit into that? And so there were conversations started years prior and, you know, they would, and, and I think to Steve's credit, you know, he saw how having a diversified business and being able to serve customers on a wide variety of their needs was going to be more and more important going forward. And I don't think he ever got away from that. And so 
you know, over the years, we, we had conversations and it finally started gelling, I would say about a year prior. And we, I would say, got more serious about it towards, towards the middle or, or third or fourth quarter of, of last year. It was by and large kind of a foregone conclusion towards, let's say, the end of January, February. So right about the time COVID is happening, it is, it is the time where this kind of five-year conversation is coming to a head. And we saw the opportunity to join with somebody who, you know, for all the other things, just saw the industry in a lot of the same ways we did, that it, that it needed something like this, that we needed to find a better path forward for the way that we, we serve our, our agency clients. And so we made a lot of changes, don't get me wrong. And even, even leading up to, you know, the official acquisition, you know, 2020 was an interesting place because we had three research facilities, Nashville, Charlotte, Miami. And as our digital business really started to explode the second week of March and, and early April, right about the time that the acquisition occurred, we we uh, actually had, you know, plenty of staff to pull in. And we started kind of cannibalizing a lot of our resources from our in-person work, which was starting to decline and bringing those over to the digital side. So we were kind of building a life raft for ourselves from our own resources when the acquisition then finally completed. Now we've got access to all these other resources. And so it helped us grow our, our business in a staggering fashion over the next few months. You know, the strategy really didn't change, Meryl. It's, it's, it's more about aligning with this vision that I think Steve has had, that, that myself and Jim, my, my former partner, had about, about where the industry needs to go and what, what customers are really looking for and asking for. Yeah, no, I think there's a lot of takeaways there. And, and so many people want to know what's the future of in-person research. And also, I mean, everybody has an opinion. What's your take on that, Isaac, the future of it? It'll probably come as a shock to a lot of people who think of me as a technologist or somebody that is uh, out there talking about digital research a lot. But look, I have never, ever said that in-person research is ever going to go away. As a matter of fact, I think it's always going to be a healthy part of the portfolio, even if you look at the long term, because it just has so many values that it brings to the table. Um, I think digital needs to be a big part of that portfolio. So I've, I've never been an advocate of let's stop doing in person at all. So there's that healthy balance that I think needed to exist. What we're seeing today is obviously almost um, all in-person research ground to a halt for at least a quarter. It's starting to come back today, but we are running in the qualitative research industry predominantly through digital methods today. I think it's opened a lot of eyes. I think people who were kind of on the fence about about using digital methods, communities, online discussions, video interviews, there is no more fence to sit on. <laughs> they have, if they, if they want to continue to learn from their customers, they have to get engaged. And so we've seen, we've seen a lot of positivity around that. We've also seen a lot of customers who, you know, Meryl, when you've got options, sometimes you get a little bit, uh, I don't know how to put this, uh, you know, if I've got option A, which is something I'm really used to, and then option B, which might have some benefits, but it requires a lot of change and rethinking. Option A seems really attractive. And so that's really been a force that we've fought for years with digital research because we said, look, there's, a, there's some methodologies that we do in person that, gosh, if you just adapt those for online, there's actually some big advantages. We're now forced to do that. And so we're, we're seeing a lot of customers that are, that are seeing the benefit of bringing digital into their portfolio. And it's, it's, um, I think it's, it's opened a lot of their eyes. That being said, I still don't believe in-person is going away. I've seen some pundits say that, you know, nobody will ever go back to in-person or it's going to be a shell of what it used to be. I think it will take a long-term decrease overall in the volume of in-person work that's done, but it's it's not going to go away. There will be some less. It will be a measurable amount less. And I don't want to put a number on it, but I think it'll be a you know pretty decent double-digit number, um, which will cause some change, consolidation, and a difference in the makeup of that in-person part of our industry. Uh, there's some really unfortunate things that go along with that. Um, but I think, I think overall it will come back. It will just take, 
sometime. Uh, I think a vaccine is a real critical key to a lot of corporate buyers being able to feel comfortable sending their customers and their researchers back into in-person. And, and so I think we're probably going to have some tough sledding until until we reach that point. Yeah, which which I'm not even sure we're halfway through the vaccine and we're sitting here in September. Um, I really think that uh, that this is going to go till probably late March, April, and hopefully not far beyond that. But I don't see I don't see a vaccine prior to that. I just don't. I think there's a, there's a lesson in here for our industry and, and maybe just a business lesson in general. And, you know, if you if you look at the makeup of a lot of the in-person research operators, uh, folks like 2020 and then and then even Schlesinger, and you really look at them, you, you've got you've got folks that, that really, really focused and doubled down on in-person research and were able to execute excellently for a very long time. And, you know, that focus brings fantastic things, you know, good profit margins. And you really know your operations really well. Um, the downside of being so focused is that when something like this comes along, which is a you know what, what, like once in a decade seems to be kind of kind of narrow, I think what, maybe even once in a lifetime event, that focus if you're just on the wrong side of of the behavior change can be really catastrophic. Now the other side is if you've run a very diversified business that's got all these business lines, and we see this not only with in-person operators but research agencies who never did any digital until March fifteenth. You benefit from that focus that you had all those years, but then when change comes knocking at your door, it's really challenging because now you've, you, if you don't have that diversity, um, you're, in a, you're in a real tough spot. But I want like the, the silver lining is you know a lot of those companies that really doubled down on a single methodology that may be challenging today, you know they got to reap the benefits of that for many many years if not decades. Today the diversification is paying off, but it comes at a cost. I mean it's very expensive to run diversified businesses. You know you've got to got to be a lot smarter about your marketing and your strategy and your operations to run a diversified business. But it also does allow you to weather storms like this. Well, yeah. I mean, for so many years, you know, it was, are you a generalist or you're a specialist? If you're a specialist going into the pandemic and on the wrong side of that, your business is probably crushed for a while and maybe not be able to recover for, for years with an S, right? Um, so it is, it is an interesting discussion for sure. So early on, you said you made tons of mistakes in your career. Well, I'm in a really giving mood today, Isaac. So I'm going to correct one of those mistakes. What's the biggest mistake you ever made that I can correct today? Merrill, you do ask tough questions. So. <laughs> well, you better answer it. I'm going to ask you another tough question if you don't answer that one. <laughs> All right. When you're running a business and you're thinking about partnerships and strategies and, and how to drive your business forward, you know, the single most important thing I think you do is is the is, is make decisions about the company you keep, uh, the partners you bring in, the type of talent you bring in. A mistake that I have repeated um, that I am trying to repeat <laughs> less often is hiring people who may not share the same values as the company that I'm running. And, and I do it because I think they've got an edge or an advantage or um, they'll bring something new and fresh to the table. When somebody tells you who they are, you need to listen. And I've been in lots of situations where we've brought people into our business or we've created partnerships and something happened early on that made me kind of queasy, you know, something they said or a way they approached a situation that either didn't line up with our values at 2020 or just didn't feel right. And I, like, I can, I can remember those moments in my gut because I'm like, oh, this is going to come back to bite me because I should, I should, I should see this and I should take action, but maybe I'm wrong. In most of those cases, in the long run, I've been proven right that when people tell you who they are and their values don't align with with the company you're trying to run and the, and the type of people you're trying to surround yourself with, 
it, it usually ends in failure. Very, very, I, I don't have a single example from my career where I brought somebody into our organization and said, well, maybe this will work out or, you know, maybe they will change. Um, and, and that that worked out for the better. I, I can't actually mention or think about any time that it worked out for the better, but I can point to maybe five or 10 times when it's been real detrimental to our organization. Yeah. I think there's some good takeaways there. And I appreciate that is a hard question for sure. But the way people learn is obviously analyzing the decisions that they've made, the mistakes moving forward, and then having others learn from it. So let me ask you an easy question. What's it like to work with Steve? You know that he's my BFF and I spend a lot of time with him. I vacation with him. I chair conferences with him. I talk to him probably every single day, but I've never had the pleasure of working for him um, in a business situation. Yes, we do a lot of business with Schlesinger, but um, it's a little bit different. So what's it, what's it like to work with Steve Schlesinger? Thanks. Fantastic. So I get a little bit of an advantage because when people think of, of acquisitions, you think about kind of, um, I think what people get a lot in their heads, is like, you know, two families kind of getting merged together and boy, how's this all going to work out? Steve and I've had a relationship for a long time. We had a lot of shared common values and ways that we looked at the industry. So that's super helpful, right? Uh, and I would encourage anybody who's thinking about, you know, partnering any sort of M&A where you might become part of a company or acquire a company. Like I cannot stress culture and personality fit enough. It'll, it'll ruin the whole thing if there's not a, a real connection there. So Working with Steve, he's somebody who knows the industry inside and out. I mean, it's embarrassing sometimes how much he knows about industry operations, the, number, the, you know, the people that he knows in the industry. And so he, he really sees it from a very high vantage point to his, to his leaders that he's very empowering. And what he does is he takes that knowledge and he nudges you. So, you know, Steve is somebody who doesn't come in and say, this is how I want to do it. He will come in and, and we will, as a leadership group, make decisions or bring up items and give feedback. But it's, it's pretty rare that Steve is telling people what to do. It's, it's very more common that he's helping you through the thinking and the thought process. And in a lot of cases where we're looking at, at leaders in different parts of our organization and, and he and I are working together on things, you know, he wants to see how people think and he doesn't pretend like he's got the right answer. And so there's been a lot of occasions where, you know, we're talking about a decision or something we're trying to do or how we're going to integrate something. And he'll say, you know, let's let them figure it out. In some situations, what what a leader would be doing is saying, and if they get it wrong, you know, we'll just get rid of them. That's not Steve. He really wants to understand and, and see how they would approach the problem. From my perspective, it's a real powering place for me to be. And I think for all of the folks in our organization, I, I think when they get to spend some time with them, they get to feel that, that he's there to empower what they're doing, not to tell them what to do. And, and I really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. I Obviously, I know him very, very well. And sometimes I hear rumblings that, oh my God, there's Steve Schlesinger. I can't go up to him. He's, he's scary. You know, he's so impressive. He's so smart. He's not going to want to talk to me. And you know, what's funny. There's not, Steve does nothing that should be scary. He's, he's a regular guy. I mean, he put, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. Yes. He, he's the guy and built the company um, to one of the largest in the, in this great industry that we're in, but he's just a regular guy and he's very, very approachable. So it's, it's funny when I hear stuff like that. Hey, Isaac, uh, quickly, what's success to you? You know, you think a lot about that when you're running a business like 2020 and then you become part of a group called Schlesinger. Cause, cause I think, you know, for, for me, it gives me a little bit of almost not a reset button, but a little bit of a pause to say, you know, what's success going to look like going forward. And, um, I like to win. And I'm not somebody who needs to win at the loss of someone else, but I, I love that feeling of accomplishment. And 
you know, whether it's, you know, talking to a client and, and solving a big problem and then, and then creating a better relationship because of it. Or, you know, um, I spent a lot of time with technology products, you know, using technology and solving a problem that other people thought you couldn't solve before. I love that feeling of accomplishment. And business is a great place to exercise that muscle because you can get that feeling of accomplishment in a lot of different ways. Um, there's also a lot of pain, right? Because when you get it wrong, it hurts. <laughs> but but I think that makes the accomplishment that much more rewarding to me. Um, so, you know, for me, it's not, I don't tie it to any monetary value. I tie it to the feeling that we, we had an impact in the world. Um, and, and so that's my personal driver from a, from a company perspective, big believer in culture. I, you know, we go to work with these people eight, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes, and you travel with them and, you know, you break bread with them all the time. And, and if you don't love these people that you're working with and, and you don't all share a set of values and vision, all those hours that you spent don't feel as good. And so I think success is how do you accomplish things? And how do you feel, get that sense of accomplishment? And how do you do it surrounded by people that you really love and enjoy? Uh, that's great. All right. We're going to end with a real, real, real easy question, a real softball question. Don't ask about sports, Meryl, because I don't know anything about sports. No, I'm not going to go sports. Wouldn't do that to you. I'm going to ask you an easier question. I'd like to get better at blank in the next six months. We're going to end with that. I want to get better at blank in the next six months. What is it, Isaac? Fill in the blank. Right now, just where we are with integrating these businesses, um, I'm, I'm, I'm having to balance working in the business with on the business. And that's, that's, just, that's just where we're at. And so six months from now, actually, Steve and I were talking about this last night. Um, six months from now, I really hope that I'm in a position where I can, I can help work on the business more and not as much in the business. It is a necessary thing right now. But my hope, um, if we're going to bring this vision to life, and we have some very grand plans for the industry, is that six months from now, I'm spending the preponderance of my time working on the business and the problems that the industry faces and how do we solve them and less time with the, the tactics inside the business. That's great. Well, I, I misused the truth there. I said that was going to be the last question, but that's not going to be the last question because based on one thing you just said, you said you had grand plans that you want to unveil. Why don't you give us a little nugget of, of a piece of that grand plan for the listeners? So, yeah. So one of the things that Steve and I have always believed is that, you know, we love this industry. Look, we've both dedicated, you know, the, our careers to this. But in a lot of ways, this industry is a little bit behind the times. And I'm not just talking about technology. I'm talking about the whole value chain and how we deliver our services and, and how we work together as suppliers and agencies and partners. And, and I, I think COVID is going to accelerate uh, an evolution in this industry and the products and services that we deliver for the industry have to get easier, faster, more effective and efficient. We've got to remove all these friction points that exist in our industry, but frankly have been there so long that those of us that have grown up in the industry don't even notice anymore. Um, they have to get removed because there are so many people dying to get to the assets we have, the consumer insight and the feedback that we can provide businesses. But we make it hard. And unless you're a professional researcher, you don't even know how to navigate our world. So our vision is we believe that we can take this industry and, and make it so that people can consume the value of what we provide on a much, much, much easier basis. And we can open it up to a much, much wider audience. So I'll leave you with that. Really, really good stuff. Isaac, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Thanks again for listening. This is the On The Mark podcast. My name is Merrill Dubrow and have a wonderful day.